Thank you, music team. I have a fresh appreciation for music ministry. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I am not a music guy. I'm not, a music, I'm not the music pastor. I, I am now, but I wasn't, that wasn't the intent when I came on staff here. So I, I see all of the work that goes into that ministry now. And for anybody that's ever served in music ministry, you're saying, amen. It's good for a pastor to know what we go through, right? Uh, so anyway, thank you guys for serving us. It's sweet. All right. As always, it's great to be back with you guys in our study of Ephesians. So you can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be launching into chapter 5 tonight. Ephesians chapter 5. I will turn there along with you guys. And as you know, we've been studying this incredible theme that you can see on the screen here of being imitators of God. We know from our study that God has radically saved us. He's made us new creatures in Christ. And as a result of that, He's now working in us. He's committed to us. And He's working in us now to be a people who reflect His image. He's creating us to be a people who think and act like Him in the world. And He's creating us to be a people who radiate His glory. And the first three chapters are all about about that. And he, he intends this for us, even you and I here, right here in Boundless at, at Timberlake. And it's just so encouraging to see just, you know, at an individual level, then kind of high altitude, how he's at work in you guys and in our church just in this season. It's a, it's a fruitful season. Um, I was talking with Bailey and some of the other guys last night about that. Um, just a, a sweet time. He's growing us. He's renewing our minds. He's producing the fruit of obedience. Uh, and that it just, it's just thrilling, and it's such a, such a sweet time to be part of, of body life here at Timberlake. You guys are truly a huge encouragement to my soul, so um, it's a thrill to be here tonight. And even though we're starting a new chapter tonight, um, we're actually wrapping up Paul's paragraph, what we've been in for the last several weeks. And this is one of those uh, less than helpful chapter divisions um, in our English Bibles, but we'll take it. Um, You can think of this message as as Paul tying up everything he said in verses 25 all the way through 32 of chapter 4. And it's it's the climax of this section. It's like the the main diamond on a a diamond wedding engagement ring. You know, it's studded with other other smaller diamonds. This is the big one, um, right in the middle. And it's, it's arguably the most important verses, the, the most central vision for how we should think about the Christian life right here in these, these two verses in chapter 5. So I'm calling our, our final message in this series a final word um, from Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. So in, in these verses, he's going to just issue two summary commands. Two summary commands. That's, that's, those are what's here. You know, we've, we've seen that this has just been sort of staccato commands through here. Put off put off this, put on this. Well, in, in our text tonight, we're just going to see these two summary positive commands. And they're really straightforward, but a lot to unpack. It's, it's imitate God and walk in love like Christ has loved you. So imitate God and walk in love as Christ has loved you. 
Those are the two summary commands we're going to be going over tonight. So now we've got a lot to work through in these verses, even though it's short. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Read with me in verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first summary command that Paul's issues is, is this. It's just mimic God. Right? Mimic God. Paul is essentially summing up all that's gone before in this paragraph with a sweeping statement that we should imitate God or mimic, mimic Him as His children. So now that you're His child, in other words, you should imitate your father. So that's easy, straightforward, not easy, but at least straightforward, easy to understand what this command is. It's pretty staggering, though. Imitate God. Um, This is the only time in the Bible that this particular phrasing is used. So let's think through this a bit. What's going on here? What does it mean to imitate someone? Well, it means that we pattern ourselves after them. We are influenced by them. We become like them in fundamental ways. We adopt their ways of thinking. We value what they value. Our impulses and reflexes and reactions begin to look like theirs. And eventually we we just come to resemble them. That's what it means to imitate somebody. And there's there's no better example of this principle than uh, children with their parents. You guys know where this is going. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. So, as children develop, they quickly begin to imitate mom and dad, uh, the good and the bad of mom and dad. So, about a year ago, I was working on um, building some wooden shelves in our storage room downstairs, and I was pretty fixated on what I was doing, and I wasn't really paying attention to my then two-year-old son, Colin. But when I looked down he had, of his own initiative, gone upstairs and kind of pulled his tool basket out from his room. So we've got a, like, some little play toys for him, that, little tools and things. So he'd gone up there, he'd gotten his tool, his tool basket, he had, of his own accord, put on his own tool belt, didn't even know he could do that, can't even take off his own underwear. So now he can put on his own tool belt, just like me, I had one on. He got out every single toy version of the tools that I was using, laid them out, And he found some scrap wood that was laying around, brought it over, turned a box upside down. A lot of sophistication for a two-year-old. Turned a box upside down and began to lay the wood on top of each other and was working on his shelves. He even had his own tape measure. Didn't have any numbers on it, but it just kind of like a, just pulled out, you know. And uh, he was muttering some some numbers that he heard me kind of saying. And he he can't even count, right, at this point. Doesn't even know what numbers are. So he's, he's muttering that to himself, and of course I loved it, right? So I'm, I'm seeing this, and it's just like, it's warming my heart. Well, I, I did a little experiment. I was like, okay, I'm not going to act like I see him. I kept working. I kept pretending that I wasn't watching him just to see what he would do, and it was very humbling because he would, he would watch me for a minute, and, it, you know, because I'm kind of doing this thing, and I'm kind of looking at him at the, at the side, of my, side of my eye, and he was watching me. 
and he would see what I would do, then he would go work a little bit, then he would stop, and he would look back up at me again. Then he would do the next thing he was doing. He got out his little toy drill, begin to assemble his shelves or whatever, and um, it, was, it was great. But it impressed on me just the reality uh, of God's design of these kinds of things. So children imitate their fathers and mothers by design. Like it's wired into them. It's the way God's wired the universe to work. They do it naturally because that's the way God's designed it. And Paul capitalizes on this metaphor. He capitalizes on this pattern. And he says, this is how we should be with God himself. We should imitate God, he says, like beloved children. And that's because we're his children, right? And because we are, God's going to see to it that we do, in fact, come to resemble him. It's part of what it means to be his child. Now, I think at this point in Ephesians, if you're new or we're just kind of dropping in, we've got to reorient ourselves to the fact that this was not always our identity. Okay? We know that from experience, but from like the, book, the book of Ephesians itself, God's revelation tells us that this was not always what we were. We were not always God's children. We don't want to forget the fact that we were once, what Paul says in chapter 2, if you look back there, uh, we were once sons of disobedience. You see that in chapter 2, verse, the end of verse 2. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh. So we were once sons of disobedience, meaning we were, we were children that were characterized by flagrant disobedience to God, whether outwardly or just inwardly in our hearts. And because of that, in verse 3, he says, we were by nature... Children, I want you to hear the language, children of wrath. Meaning we, were, we had God's wrath on our backs. We were targets for his just and judicious wrath on us because of our rebellion against him and our sin. Again, whether that was manifested outwardly or inwardly, that's, that's the reality. And we, we literally, if you jump, I mean, we're kind of jumping around here in chapter 2, but you, you go back to the beginning of verse 2, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That means we were following Satan. So to use John's words the, in, in John's epistle, 1 John, he says we were children of the devil. Okay? So just I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out this language of children uh, and sonship and those kinds of things. We were not God's children. To use another word, you go back even further, Genesis 3, we were were seeds of the serpent. And our thinking, our attitudes, our values, and even our behaviors once imitated our sinister father. And that's the idea. So I just want to take a moment right now and just say, if your life is characterized by sin, I'm not talking like, I sin, I'm convicted, but I'm talking your life is characterized by sin, if you really don't desire to be with the people of God, if you yawn at preaching, if sin and rebellion excites you, if you find yourself wanting to imitate unbelievers, if you're more at home in the sinful culture that you find yourself in versus the church, you're likely still a child of the devil. Why is that? Well, you want to mimic your father because you're his offspring. 
And that's what the Apostle John is getting at when he says in, in 1 John 3, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, don't deceive yourself if that's you, if you know that's you. If you're claiming to be a Christian, when you know deep down that you're, you're pretending and you're somebody else and, and you really love these other things. But the good news is, if, if, you, if you're broken by that, if you're willing to admit that, kind of come clean, God will lavishly forgive you. He'll forgive you, he'll, he'll turn you into his child instantaneously. He'll quickly adopt you into the family if you turn to him in faith and repentance, even right now. So there's no reason to linger in that state. And if you've done that, which is, that's my assumption tonight, if you're a believer, Paul says you're not just God's child, as awesome as that is, but even more, you're his beloved child. So it's like, it's, it's heightened. You're a beloved son or daughter. Do you see that in Ephesians 5? If you flip back there, Ephesians 5.1. Be the imitators of God as beloved children. This means he loves you like he loves his only son, Jesus. That's what it means to be a beloved child. And that's because we're in him. We're in Christ, fundamentally. That transition's happened. We're no longer children of the devil. We're children of God. We're in Christ, clothed in him. And that's super important in this context. To be loved like this means you're secure. Like you're a secure child. You're a child that has no reason to distrust the intentions of your father. You're perfectly loved. To be loved like this means that your father will go to any extent to do what's best for you. To be his beloved child means that you've experienced his love in the gospel now. So when it comes to mimicking him, this means we're not trying to earn his favor. You see that? We're to imitate God as his children or because we're his children. We're not trying to get him to adopt us into the family to earn credibility with God. He's already adopted us. That's already happened. He did that freely when we were his enemies, when we had nothing to offer him except our rebellion. And he's brought us in and secured our our familial status. And now we're freed up to learn to imitate him. As we spend time with him, as we spend time with his people, we learn the family values. That's the idea. We learn the rules of the house, so to speak. We learn how to be fully human. It's be another way to say that. To flourish in joy as we radiate the image of God. That's what we've been learning about in this, this Imitators of God series, is that obedience is not... It's the best thing for you. It's what it, it's what it means to be truly human. Sin is a, is a perversion. It might seem exciting, but it leads to death every time. So obedience, righteousness, holiness are the most beautiful things in the universe. And now we're free to pursue these things. We're free to to imitate precisely because we are loved by God and we're not in fear of hell. Does that make sense? So that's that's really important to note here as we're thinking about imitation. Now, we've talked a lot about mimicking God 
right now, but at this point you might be thinking, okay, well, how does mimicking God relate to mimicking other people? Right? So we know we're supposed to follow other people, like be discipled and disciple others. So how do these, these relate? Doesn't Paul also command me to imitate others in the church? Well, the answer is that imitating God and imitating other Christians, they're not mutually exclusive. Okay? It's kind of an obvious statement, but put it out there. It's a both and, it's not an either or. Paul sums it up well in 1 Corinthians 11.1 when he says, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So there's sort of a chain there. It's like he's imitating Christ and he's calling others to imitate him as he imitates Christ or insofar as he imitates Christ. So we imitate other people then as they imitate Christ or insofar as they imitate Christ. So we're still mimicking God, essentially, as we mimic these other people as we mimic the good that we see in the lives of other Christians. So this, this has some implications as we think, think through this. This is why I'm including this here. As we, as we follow other people, we're encouraging you to, disciple, to be discipled, and then as you're growing, to begin bringing people along behind you. As we, as we follow other people, we've we got to be careful that we're not worshiping those people. Esteem them? Yeah. Certainly, but we don't want to put them in the place of Christ. Instead, we want to always be aware that anything good in them, anything good we see in them, comes from Christ Himself and is a glimmer or a little reflection of Christ. So, put it differently, anything good I see in in a mentor or somebody that I'm following, I think, wow, this is beautiful, but it is exemplified to an even greater degree in Christ than what I'm seeing now. It finds its perfection in Him. Now, this is super helpful, because it, oftentimes the Lord may feel distant. Um, it may be easier to see, oh, my discipler loves me, or my mentor loves me, and I'm not so sure about God in this moment. But what you're seeing in your mentor, that good and noble thing that you see in them, is just to an infinite degree in Christ and how he feels and, and acts and responds toward you because Christ is producing that in your mentor and it just exemplifies him. So I think that's, that's very helpful to see. Even in our discipleship, it's all flowing toward this imitation of God in Christ. And I, I bring that out, again, just because we're sometimes in danger of idolizing our disciples, thinking that they can't do anything wrong or they have everything together in some sense. But the reality is they don't. We're sheep, you're sheep, we're all sheep at some level. And that means we're all, we all go astray at some level, and Christ is the chief shepherd. Are they ahead of us? Yeah, in many ways. But they are just trying to reflect Christ like you. They are often going to let you down. Does that mean you just give up on discipleship? No, but this is just having a realistic perspective of discipleship. They're going to have their own set of weaknesses, and if they're humble, they're really humble, they're going to remind you to imitate only as far as they reflect Christ. Because we all know we're weak. So that's if we're following other people. I want, to, I want you to think about this. As others are coming along behind you in discipleship, we need to also keep this in mind, that our end goal is having them imitate God. Our disciples are ultimately following Christ, not us. We can't become territorial over this stuff. 
we need to remind those that are following us of this. Any, anything good in us comes from Him. Anything beautiful they see in us is, is radically perfected in Him. And we want to be directing our disciples back to this reality that, that they're ultimately mimicking not just us, but God in Christ is the, is the end goal. And I think it's so helpful out of this text. Now, what does mimicking God look like in real time? Okay, just think about that. What does this look like in day-to-day? What should this look like in our lives? Well, one way we can answer that question is by realizing that Paul has already told us uh, what this should look like in the verses that came before in this paragraph. The verses that we've been covering these last several weeks and before, you know, even last semester. So in verse 25, Paul says we should be characterized by the truth we should be, verse 26, constructively angry about the right things. Verse 20, 26 and 27, we should be quick to pursue reconciliation and peace. Verse 28, we should be hard workers who are generous. Verses 29 and 30, we should be gracious in our speech. Verse 31, we should be lavishly forgiving other people and kind. So what does imitating God look like? It looks like that. He's summarizing what came before by saying, therefore, be imitators of God. He's already told us, in in one sense, in one answer, kind of how we can frame that up. But, Paul's Paul, and he knows what he's doing, and the way he organizes his letters. So, I love what he does in this very next verse. He highlights the main way, the overarching way, that he wants us to imitate God. And this is his second command. There's one concept that unites everything in this paragraph. There's one way of imitating God that stands above the rest, that encompasses everything, and it's the command to demonstrate love. To demonstrate love. And this is really where this whole section, even the back half of this book, has been sort of marching to kind of get to this point. So demonstrate love. Look in verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and, so closely connected, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we could just say we need to be demonstrating love. So Paul's continuing to sum up everything else that happened before. And that's because love is central in Paul's theology, in Paul's ethic. Love is like the queen virtue in the Christian life. He's he's crystallizing all of his ethical instruction for us in this one command to walk in love. But what does that mean? What does he mean, really, to walk in love? Let's, Let's unpack that. Well, as we've seen before in this letter, Paul uses this word walk in a certain way. When he says we should walk in a certain way, he, he intends us to understand that this is a metaphor for our lifestyle. It's a metaphor for how we live. To walk in love, then, means that the pattern of our lives should be love. Okay? The pattern of our lives should be love. When people think of us, they should think, wow, that person's loving. They're not perfect, but it's habitual. It's growing. It's the clear pattern of their life. 
if Paul were here, like this is the highest aim for the Christian. This is like Christianity 101 for Paul. You've got to be walking in love if you know the God of love, the God who has loved you radically like, he's loved, like we're loved in Christ. To not be characterized by love would just, would just be this, this massive dissonance in Paul's mind. But at this point, we're in a little bit of the danger zone, okay? Because we're all bringing our own definitions of what love is into the picture, right? So we bring our own definitions of love into this command, and then we envision what love looks like based on how we think about love. So some of you may think of love almost exclusively as as an, an emotional thing. So we should, have a, we should have deep and sincere feelings for others. We should act in warm and affectionate ways toward each other. Others of you may think of love as being nice, or never saying anything controversial, or always smiling and, and acting polite. Thus, a, a correction or rebuke would be interpreted as unloving or judgmental. Or others may think of, of love exclusively in terms of actions, right? Like, love is a verb. Like, it's just... You just got to do it. Like you do, you, you, you have loving actions. And that, that, just, that just raises the question, okay, so what is love? It doesn't really matter what I think. It matters insofar as like I'm recognizing what I'm thinking. But we need to see, we need to ask, what is love according to Scripture? Well, we've seen, like I said, all these positive virtues in this section. We've seen that they're all manifestations of love. It's like love in action, love on display. But how should we actually define love? How would you define it? Well, the scriptures tell us that, that God's character and nature define love. Okay? So love is not some like abstract quality out here, and God just happens to resemble this abstract quality of love. Like God birthed and gives definition to love. Like it emanates from Him. That's what the scriptures mean when it says, when they say, God is love in 1 John 4. God is love, meaning his character, his nature, he himself provides the parameters of what love is and is not. And in Scripture, what we almost always find in these contexts is a reference to God's disposition to give of himself for the good of others. I think that's up there, yeah. Love is God's disposition to give of Himself for the good of others. Keep your finger in Ephesians and turn over to 1 John 4. just want you to see this. We're going to look at this kind of another context to put in parallel here. 1 John 4, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 7. We're going to see this, I think, here, and then we're going to see it again when we jump back in Ephesians. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, because, for, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's pretty straightforward. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So there's our phrase, God is love. 
In this was the love of God made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So, in this text, he's saying God's love was displayed. It was manifested. It was shown to us. How? Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest, i.e. it was shown among us, that God sent His only Son into the world. So, God's sending Christ into the world was a manifestation of His love so that we might live through Him. And what's more, John specifically tells us the true measure of love is not found in our love, so we shouldn't think about defining it, right? It's not found in us, but in God's love, as it's specifically displayed, not just in sending His Son, but sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. There it is. God's disposition to give of Himself for the good of others. So He's sending His own Son to absorb all of His wrath for your sin. When you were His enemy. And that's exactly what we find here in our context in Ephesians. So you can flip back to Ephesians 4. 5, sorry, Ephesians 5. Notice that Paul tells us to love in a specific way, he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and, notice the verb, gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there it is again. Love is God's disposition to give of Himself for the good of others. And the superlative example, the crowning jewel is the cross. One, one theologian put it like this. He said, God will go to the uttermost to bless His people. He will give Himself to the greatest extent. And if the cross represents God's character in such profundity, it cannot help but be the standard for our own lives. And Paul here specifically calls us to imitate the redeeming self-sacrificial love of Christ. So again, like we said last week, Christ's love for us is both the template, it's the example for us, and it's the motivation for our love for other people. It stimulates our love for others. So as a template, as the example, on that side, it, it tells us what our love should look like for others as we seek to imitate Him. So right here it is. The self-sacrificing Love of Christ. And, as a motivation then, we're called to, to bend out this love, this incredible love that we've actually experienced. We're beloved children. like We've, we've experienced the love of God. And that's why that's so important to understand it. And that's why Paul prays that we understand it to its fullest, that, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge back in chapter 3. Because that's the love that we're going to bend out. So the, the experience of that is going to be the basis that we're going to, that we're going to love other people. So, you could even reverse that. If you have a hard time loving people, you probably don't understand the depth of your depravity like you ought to, and you don't understand the depth of God's love for you like you ought to. 
because you did. If you really got that, if that's connecting for you, love is, is much easier. You have new reservoirs. Like you have a new depth to go to to forgive that transgression, to, to overlook that sin, to be patient with that person that's wronging you. There's, there's, not that means that, doesn't mean that it's easy every time, but there's new depths that you didn't have before because you didn't understand these realities. So Paul, in chapter 3, prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because if we don't, we're not going to love like him. So, I want to end our time together by asking just one more very important question. And we'll spend a little time here, but how... In particular, how should our love imitate Christ's love? Like, what, what specific ways should this, should this manifest? And we, we, in a question like this, you want to start by thinking about how has he loved you? How does the Bible say that Christ loves you? And then we want to think applicationally. Okay, if that's true, and I'm supposed to love like Jesus, according to this text, then... I just like think about my friends, think about my family, think about the people in my life, think about my church, and, and just put that as the template. Okay, like, what should this look like in, in these relationships? So, I've listed a few here. Actually, I had that quote up there. Um, how should our love imitate Christ's love? Just listed a few of, of the ways he loves us, okay? His love is free. His love is free. And for this, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to stay in the book of Ephesians on this, okay? Not that we can't go to other passages of Scripture, but, but I just want to show you, like, how all this is right here in Ephesians. God's love is not bought. It's not earned. It's not conditioned. Back in Ephesians 1, chapter, in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul tells us that God chose us and predestined us, in particular, predestined us, in love. And that's before the world began. That's before you did anything good or bad. That's like, that's like you, can't get, you can't get further back than that. Like, God made the choice to save you before anything ever happened. Of his own, of his own free will. And here it tells us that love motivated that choice. So whatever other questions that raises for you, Put those aside for a minute, because the text here in verse 4 says he, in love, at the end of verse 4, start of verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as son. So love, God's love, is completely free. It's not conditioned by you in any way. It wasn't based on our worthiness in any sense. And in fact, the greatness of his love is displayed in the unloveliness of of the object. Right? It's displayed in, our, in, in the depth of our depravity that like nothing about us was appealing and yet God chose to love us. He, cho- he knew like all those things. And he, he set His love upon us. It's completely free. Now, do you realize that our love as a human being, our love, biblical love that, that Christ is, through Paul, is calling us to here, is actually not based on the worthiness of the person. 
This is otherworldly. Our love is not based on the worthiness of the recipient. We don't love people in order to get something from them. That is not love. That is manipulation. We give of ourselves in order to bless them, in order to do good to them, because that's what God did for us and it pleases Him. So, if we're going to love like God, if we're going to love like Christ, it needs to be free. It also needs to be proactive. Our love needs to be proactive. What do I mean by that? Well, God took the first action in loving us. According to Ephesians 2.3, He pursued us while we were dead in sin. He made us alive in 2.5. He came and preached peace to us in chapter 2, verse 17. His love took the first step, in other words. And I mean, that's not all it did. <laughs> um, his love gave us life. But it took, it, it, it was initiated, right? He initiated the love. That's what I'm trying to draw out. It was proactive. He sought us out as his lost sheep. He welcomed us into the family as his friends. So, that means that our love should look like this. We should resemble this. We should take the first step in loving other people rather than sit back and wait to be loved. If you know God, this is how you will love. Because this is how He's loved you. We should mimic God in how He risked Himself. Kind of weird to think about it that way, but He put Himself out there. Your God hung naked on a cross to save you. He exposed himself. He, so, <laughs> is it too much to ask to initiate love to other people when your Savior was, uh, would spare no expense to save you? And we can take this initiative in so many ways. You can introduce yourself to new people. You can invite others into your friend groups. You can proactively befriend others that you want to disciple. I mean, we just—I mean, we could, we could be here all day talking about how to proactively love other people. But what I want you to do is, like, this is not some, like, cheesy church growth program. Ugh, welcome, everybody. The new people. Make me feel comfortable. Like, yeah, we want you to feel comfortable. But, like, I want you to imitate God. Like, this is about your sanctification. This is about you bringing glory to God. And he'll grow. Like, it just, he'll do the work. But this isn't cheesy. This is, I'm imitating God, I'm initiating in love to other people because he's initiated his love to me. It needs to be proactive. Uh, it needs to be constant. Our love, we want, it, we want to try and, again, we're growing in all these things, okay? So, <laughs> we're not God, um, and we are in progress. But I'm giving you the, the, the targets here. Our love should be constant. Paul says that, that we've been lavished with the riches of God's grace in chapter 1, verse 7. 
He says that Christ's love for us surpasses knowledge in chapter 3, verse 19. He says that we're fully secure in Christ all the way through chapter 1, just in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You've got all these blessings, in Christ, in Christ. Like, the implication out of all that is that God's love for us is always constant. It's always constant. It does not wax or wane. God doesn't blow up at us and then, like, unfriend us. He won't ever have a falling out with you, and he won't ever disinherit you from his family. Can we grieve him? Yes. We saw we can grieve him just a few weeks ago in Ephesians, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by using our words in ways that are destructive in the body. Yes, we can grieve the Lord. Do we need his familial forgiveness? You better believe we do, because we sin a lot, okay? But, does this diminish the constancy of His love toward you? No. Not in the least. So like, you outside, it's cloudy, rainy. It would be ridiculous to conclude that the sun is gone. Right? Like it's no longer in orbit. It's no longer shining. So when we sin and the clouds get in the way of our relationship with God and there's guilt and there's shame, there's all those things, it would be ridiculous to conclude that God no longer loves me. Just like saying the sun's no longer there. So, yeah, the clouds need to, we need to get the clouds out of there. We need to restore harmony and fellowship with God. But <laughs> it's because he loves me that we come back, right? It's, it's because he's there. It's because his love is constant toward you. And it's, it's not based on you. It's based on Christ. So his love is constant. And you've got to get that. Because if you don't, your love won't be constant. So how about your love for the church? How, how, is it constant? Are you steady, even in the face of irritations and offenses? Constant love stays at it. Doesn't mean we don't get hurt. We do get hurt. We stay at it. We, we, stay, we stay at it, okay? It, it, we don't abandon friendships just because they get hard, or I don't gel with you, or... Fill in the blank. You hurt me. You betrayed me in some way. We're loyal even when those we love are not loyal back. That's another way that we can love like Christ loves us by by seeking to have a constancy in our love for each other in the body. Another one. I'm just going to skip the surface on this one. I'm going to try to wrap this up, but our love needs to be compassionate. This may be obvious, but it's, it's good to think about. Later in this letter in Ephesians, Paul's going to go on to describe Christ's love for us in terms of a husband's love for his bride in Ephesians 5.25 and following. He's actually going to isolate the husbands and tell the husbands how they should interact with their wives, and it's based on the same model. But in that, Interaction, he's saying essentially, okay, Christ's love is, is this beautiful, purifying love for his, for his wife, for the church. And I think implied in the metaphor, just by virtue of him using the metaphor, husband and wife, bride, groom, I think we can see that, that this love that God has for us is not some sort of like emotionless love. It is emotional, 
It is compassionate. It's zealous for us. Last week we saw that Paul told us that we should be tender-hearted toward one another. Kind and tender-hearted. And we should be gracious or forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave us. And so I think that um, I don't need to really elaborate on that because we, we, we looked at that last week, but I just want to make the point that our, our love should be warm and affectionate and compassionate. There needs to be emotion there for each other. It should be a warmth. Like when people come in here and they witness what's happening, we should sincerely love each other. You know, and even if you don't really like to be around that other person, like we can, we can learn to we can learn to like each other. Okay, like we can we can come together. The Spirit can accomplish that that kind of tender affection that God has for you. He wants you to be the agent of that in the body. And finally, <clears throat> it's my last one. Okay, I had to scratch out a number of these things. You can see I'm like, at this point, I'm starting to combine. I'm starting to combine. Uh, Combine attributes so I can <laughs> work in more. We should be redemptively sacrificial. Our love should be redemptively sacrificial. Now, they do go together, okay? They go together. And this is really the, the primary feature that Paul is highlighting in this, in this text. It's, it's Christ loved us by giving himself for us. At great cost to himself, by dying in our place, he redeemed us. Now you might be thinking, now hang on. I don't die for other people's sins to redeem them. That's like only what Jesus does, right? Yes, you are right. Your love is not in that exact same category as Christ's. But, Paul describes Christ's love for us as redemptively sacrificial for a reason. He put it here. He elaborates on Jesus' love for us for a reason. In this context, when he's talking about how we should love each other. That's because he wants us to imitate it. He wants us to see that the fruit that comes from our sacrifice of love. Does it make sense? So, we were redeemed by Christ because of his self-sacrifice. And likewise, others will experience redemptive blessings through your sacrificial love as you choose to die to yourself and to prefer the needs of other people. People will experience redemptive blessings through your death. So think about it. These are just like simple examples. Um, you, you choose to stick your neck out there and evangelize that coworker or classmate and you get mocked for it, but then they eventually come to faith in Christ. So you sacrificed yourself in love for them, your reputation, and their eternal destiny was changed. It's pretty redemptive. Or that friend that you continue to be patient with, you continue to move in and, and help even though they're immature, they continue to say hurtful things to you, they waste your time, they don't show up for discipleship meetings, yet you keep on loving them and bringing truth to bear in their lives at great cost to yourself, <laughs> slowly God begins to work in them and change them as they believe His Word in a particular area. And we see fruit happening. 
and you stick with that. You see more fruit. And then five years from now, they're a different person as a result of your faithful, sacrificial love and your consistency, combining a couple of those, in the freeness of your love toward them. It's transformative. So it, it accomplishes that which the Lord designs it to accomplish. And that's redemptive. That, that's redemptive and sacrificial love. Through sacrifice comes fruit. So, we'll bring it, bring it to a close now, but this is a super high calling, isn't it? It's overwhelming when we think about how far we have to go in loving like Christ, um, in imitating God. But I don't want you to leave tonight, if you're in Christ, I don't want you to leave tonight discouraged. I don't want you to leave buried or overwhelmed. Paul knows, we've learned this ad nauseum in our study, that the the Christian life is a process. It's a journey. Imitation is a process. It's one foot in front of the other. It's one little act of love after another little act of love. And it's it's repenting when we're self-focused, when we're self-absorbed, when we're off track. And if this seems too hard for you, you seem buried, just go back to how you've been loved by Christ. He loves you. And He's loved you like this. He went to an extent you'll never have to go to in order to redeem you. And now you get the great privilege of learning to imitate Him. Of participating in His redemptive work on earth through your own little meager attempts to love other people. And yet, He promises, promises to use your sacrifices, even the unseen ones, to produce more fruit than you can imagine. Okay, so so listen to this final, listen to this prayer from Paul in Ephesians in this, this light, okay? Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If there's a spark in you that you want to love people like this, <laughs> you've got the freight train of God behind you who could do far more than you ever imagine or think with those little meager sacrifices of love. So I want you to leave tonight encouraged and motivated to imitate your Savior and just try because He's with you. He's for you. We're with you. We're for you in this. Okay? If you have questions, like always, come talk to me. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. We're humbled in so many directions. We're humbled by your love for us. We're humbled by our failure to love like you. We're humbled by your consistency. And even now, even if if we've just been totally self-absorbed and we belong to you tonight, Your love for us is as constant as the sun. And we praise you tonight for that. And we would just ask that you would um, just make good on your promises as we we know you will do. Your promises are sure. um, And motivate us to take those next steps forward in love in our various spheres of our lives. And not just in love, but in all the manifestations that we've been learning about over these last weeks um, in Ephesians 4. We pray that you would, you would get great glory for yourself and you would use us 
to alter people's destinies um, right here in Lynchburg, uh, right in our little corner of the city. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.